Rupert Thompson, you have the one in a hundred distinction of having been chosen by David Bowie in his now famous list of a hundred favourite books. And um, we've talked about that list on Backlisted several times. I, I read a few books from it because I was so fascinated to we see did, them. We did, we did quite a few for a while there, didn't we? Yes, Actually, we did, one, of the few, one of the few writers on that list who's still alive. <laughs> What was it? So, do, can you remember when you first were yes, alerted it, to it? It was, a, it was a funny story because um, I was living in Rome. It was 1996, and I got this phone call one day. Dear Rupert, from reading your book, it's Interview Magazine. <laughs> remember that? Remember yeah, yeah, Warhol's magazine, yeah, yeah. The, the huge magazine as it was then. And um, I thought this was strange. And they said, "We've got this new. We've got this. We've had this great new idea, which is to have." really famous people inter- interviewing people who are less famous. <laughs> I, knew we, I knew immediately which one I was going to be. <laughs> so, I said, so, so, so I said, who's the, so who's the really famous person? And they said David Bowie. And I, and I kind of fell off my chair. And when I was back on it again, I said, sort of, why? And they said, it's, it's because um, he's read this book of yours called oh. The Insult. And he really loves it. And, you know, so we thought it'd be a good idea. Of course, it never happened. And I never met him, which I, which I still regret. But, and I thought he'd kind of forgotten all about that. So when that 2013 list came out, you know, mm. the, the must-read books of all time, <laughs> whatever it was called, I was really kind of thrilled that he'd remembered, that he'd loved it and he'd put it on the list. I may have jogged his memory as well, because I wrote a memoir in 2010 called This Party's Got to Stop. He appears in that book a couple of times. Yeah. There's one particular scene I wrote about watching the, the, the famous um, Hammersmith Apollo. Was it the 1973s? Odeon, the, 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 fam- the, the last, you know, the, the, the famous last, last Ziggy. Ziggy's last. And I, I, wrote, <laughs> I wrote a scene where me and my brother on Vodka and Orange watched this at, at the Curzon in Eastbourne, and the sound is bad, unlike this programme. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a scene that worked really well when I read it out loud, when I, I you know, festivals and stuff. So, so I made sure that got to him. I think it got to him, because I found okay. out who his US manager was. And Shall we start? Mm-hmm. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. You join us, hold up in a shabby hotel on the outskirts of Paris, <laughs> courtesy of our sponsors Unbound, the website which brings authors and readers together to create something special. I'm John Mitchinson the publisher of Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller, author of Tess of the Durbervilles. And uh, joining us today is uh, Rupert Thompson. Hello, Rupert. Hi. That's hey, Rupert, who you heard talking earlier. Author of such books as your first book, well, your first novel, Dreams of Leaving. Dreams of Leaving. And uh, you mentioned the memoir, This Party's Got to Stop. That was published mm. when? About 2010. 2010. And I believe in a year's time, uh, you have a novel. Is it your... Eleventh tw- novel. Eleventh novel, Never Anyone But You, yeah. is coming out. I saw you tweeting about that the other day. It sounds great. You, you uh, tweeted a picture of the, of the page proofs or manuscripts? It's not the proofs. It's something they do, something other press do in America, which is unusual, which is they produce a book that's... The, they produce an uncorrected manuscript, as ah, a, which, okay. which precedes an uncorrected proof. So... So you've got, uh, and what I love about it is it's completely unadorned. It's just a white book with black writing on it that says the title, the name of the author, and uncorrected manuscript, and then spring 2018. There's mm. something quite French about, about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you say? One year to go? I said one, only one year to wait. <laughs> but several, we were saying earlier that, that people were responding to that going, why, why so long? Yeah, as so you long. said, because that's, 
that's how long it takes. It's really it's hard. I mean, it's a, it's a persistent issue with, with authors that we are publishing. I mean, we can be a little quicker. but I, yeah. I think in a way there's something healthy about it because it allows you as the writer to, to forget about the book. Because, I mean, I'm already on the fourth version of the next one. So, I mean, I'm, by the time it comes round, you know, but by the time it gets to be the time to do the publicity for Never Anyone But You, I, I'll be able to look at it as if someone else wrote it mm. and start to have ideas about it. In a, in a way that I wouldn't if I was really close. So yeah. in some ways, I, f I find it works for me. Yeah. Um, <coughs> sorry, I've got to crack on. And the book we're talking about with Rupert today is Patrick Modiano's 1990 novel, although first translated into English in 1992, Honeymoon. Voyage de Noches, is that right? Nos. Nos, thank you. De it's not yeah, Italian, is it? No. It's not Voyage of the Nuts. <laughs> <laughs> although, mm. although mm. anyway... We'll start where all, all such shows have to start, Andy, with the immortal question. What have you been reading this week? So I've been reading a book this week that I am not going to reveal the title of, nor the author, and I'm not doing that to be arch. Um, I will explain why. We don't hate books much on Backlisted. That is not a thing we do. We tend to be enthusiastic, at best slightly sceptical. I read a novel... Uh, in the last week, which I absolutely hated. And I haven't disliked a book as much as I dislike this book for a really long time. And it's a classic. It is one of The Guardian's you, uh, 100 able, best novels. Are you able to say what the last book you most hated was? I will show that hand in a moment. <laughs> okay. OK. I feel you're so, being a little harsh mm. on this book. I just feel instinctively already. I think you're, you're, you're shouting this book down. I want to leap um, to the defence of this completely unknown. Yeah. The thing is, and I went into this book... I Open-hearted. I was really looking forward to it. I had read short stories by this author which I had really liked and I thought okay well I'm going to read this novel it's extremely well thought of it is set in an era which I'm very interested in so I went into it with really high expectations and I didn't merely dislike it I really hated it I couldn't believe how bad it was and the problem that I had was and this is what I wanted to talk about you can't like everything. As a person, you can't like everything. But what do you do when you are faced with something that has a great critical reputation? I could find many people who would, be, who would stand up and passionately support this book, where you just have a kind of allergic reaction to it. Where Did you read the whole thing? Yes, I always. You forced yourself I always, all the way I always finish. Mm, right. Because, uh, so did it get worse and worse? I found it unbearable on page one, and then it, it mm. stayed consistently unbearable right. to the bitter end. Clearly, the point I'm trying to make is, I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm wrong. There's clearly, there's a yeah. weight of critical opinion that suggests that this is a very good book. But for whatever reason, I, I'm it's, totally it's so, blind to it's it. It's so odd that you... I don't get that as often with books as I do with movies. I remember right. being utterly bemused by everybody. Do you remember Diva? The, the, yes. Yeah. Triumph uh, of Style over Content. And, and Betty Blue. I just thought it was utter... I mean, sort of offensive rubbish. Yeah. But whereas I very rarely get that with a no, book. No, though, fortunately, this doesn't happen to me very often. What I mean, about that's people? The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, it's yeah, it doesn't weird, happen very often, does it, where yeah. you get that absolute chemical 
ab reaction. The other thing is that I found, I, I found yeah, was a you know, I go around talking in my, in my lecture about how... If, you, you have know, to give things a chance. Yes, you have to yeah, give yeah. things a chance. And if you read Middlemarch and you don't like Middlemarch, that isn't Middlemarch's fault, yeah. etc. And then you need to try harder. But the result of reading this book was I just found it a very depressing experience because it made me think, oh, oh I'm, not, I'm not very good at reading. I'm clearly an idiot because this is transparently awful, the prose of... Can I, I just read a bit here? Yeah, OK. OK. So... Since how long? How long had it been raining? An hour ago, perhaps, what had been being said had become not necessary. The rasping, wordy battle might have been quieted before now. London itself gave out the feeling of having been alleviated for some time. Nothing went on out there but that lulling fall and that sighing silence, under the breast of which late-night traffic only gave out a stifled, deeper sigh. The total dark of the city became tonight as unprecautionary, natural as that of rocks, woods and hills on which elsewhere rain fell. The peacefulness of this outcome of the late evening's tense, massed, warlike clouds was the one thing astonishing. Now, in effect, the war became as unmeaning as the quarrel. Two persons speechlessly at a window became as anonymous as the city they overlooked. These two, though fated to speak again, could be felt to be depersonalised speakers in a drama which should best of all have remained as silent as it essentially was. Now, that is not untypical. It is written in that register throughout. I am not... I tried to Murphy, do that as neutrally as Murphy I could. Right? But no... No, I it's genuinely, no exaggeration, no, no. I... I in, do you remember I, you remember I read Finnegan's Wake? Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> I enjoyed Finnegan's Wake more. <laughs> uh, and that's not an exaggeration. This is a factually accurate statement. I got more out of Finnegan's Wake than God. I got out of this book. What is it? And I wasn't... De- I just found it depressing, because I kind of thought... You, you read and you read and you try and you make the effort and you want to engage and yet when it comes down to it there, if you don't like peanut butter no amount of eating peanut butter is going to make you like peanut butter in theory and you just have these allergies that you can't process so I'm just fascinated about how we deal with that as readers John, do you feel like you've read that book? It, it feels like a... I don't know it, I don't know, it's got a weird... If I tell I them what like it is it. If I tell them what it is will you bleep it so yeah. we can hear their reaction? Can we do a little bit of a guessing? Is it it's set in the first half of the 20th century? Written in the first half of the 20th century? Yes. Um, oh, God. It's not... I'm going to reveal it to the room now. Ah! That's interesting. I've, I wish who I haven't read. I was just so disappointed, but I'm not disappointed in the author because it's not the author's fault. I'm just disappointed in my own reaction to it. I would have loved to have enjoyed it. Do but you think I, it, I'm, and I'm, I'm baffled at the extent to which I, I found it, it so offensive. Here's, here's an interesting thing. I'm, I was fasc- I've been fascinated by what happened with Salter. And you, did, you didn't much like sport, no, sport in a pastime. I did not. But I and did I liked it a lot more when I re-read it again for all the reasons that we put in the podcast. But you definitely seem to be more... Having Rowan and I be quite passionate and and, uh, and kind of pro, it's sort of a, a bit like perhaps my understanding and feelings of sympathy for Rosamund Lehman, which were already quite high, were sort of hugely enhanced by having yeah. you and Azu. Do you think there's some odd thing that happens when 
almost like a phatic communication that happens around books when you listen to somebody and suddenly connections get made that you might not if you're just doing it on your own as it were yeah, I, I agree. But there are certain writers that really divide people, and, yeah. and Salter is actually one of them, because yeah. I, I assumed that I was, I was right when I thought that he was a wonderful writer, and I thought that anyone with taste would think the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I had some good people, some good contemporary writers to back me up, like Sarah Hall and Kirsty yeah. Gunn, and yeah. you know, they're all fans. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then you know, I, I started talking to my US publisher about about him and she said oh, that stuff is disgusting yeah and she sort of meant disgusting in the french sense so she's yeah, belgian yeah. and so she meant sort of dégoûtant yeah mm, mm. you know she meant uh you know it yeah. was almost a moral ju- it was a kind of a moral judgment and, yeah. and, and and i've since read um you know there's kind of feminist school of of criticism yeah, yeah, sure, that, sure. that have taken against him uh, understandably and, yeah I guess, understandably ways, yeah but i just yeah i just for you love the stories yeah, I love the stories, the sorts of stories. And um, I love the stories of the author we've just mentioned. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but clearly this, no- this novel wasn't for me. Uh, but that's as, that's as... I mean, the thing is, not liking books is, is part of the fun of liking reading. But actually, John, what you, what you were just saying is entirely correct. I think that, that, that disliking a book, uh, 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 you know passionately and eloquently is still however passionate and eloquent usually a bit of a cul-de-sac yeah and actually it's far more enlightening to if you don't like a book to to listen to the opinions of people who do like it mm. and tell you about why they like it um and i agree with you about salter yeah i mean salter you're right i didn't i didn't much enjoy reading the salter but it, hearing it talked about by people who were able to enlighten me about it definitely increased my my understanding of it, you know. John, what have you been reading this week? Thank you, Andy. Um, I've been reading a book which I grazed about 10, maybe even 15 years ago, which I've had on my shelf and I've always said I must go back and reread it. It's a book called Identity of England by Robert Coles. Robert Coles is a historian, professor of cultural history at De Montfort University in Leicester. And he's also the author, most recently, of George Orwell, English Rebel, which is terrific. I, I had heard of the Orwell book, but yeah. I'd never heard of this book. I wanted to commend okay. you. I wanted to commend you for choosing a truly backlisted well, title. Because I, I, I tell you what, why. I mean, one is that Coles is uh, from the Northeast, which is where my family are from, and he's also he's the next generation on from the great E.P. Thompson, Richard Hoggart, those kind of writers who've, who've written about working class history his first book was about Northumbrian folk song called the Collier's Rant which again I'm interested in so but he wrote this book in 2002 published by OUP got fantastic reviews at the time it's an attempt to understand Englishness well the the book is about the the conflict in England between the state the idea of the state and 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 nationhood as he says you can't tell that story sequentially it's all about the way, as he rather brilliantly says towards the beginning, in the life of nations, so much depends on how the past is lined up with the present. Orwell's English, he wrote it in a way, in a kind of dialogue with the 1944 book by George Orwell called The English. Orwell's English and the English of today cannot be compared as if they're two specimens in a box. They can only be explained through a line connecting how they thought about themselves then and how we think about ourselves and them now over a much longer time sequence and through a more complex patterns of connection, this is what this book tries to do. 
and it's it's brilliant it's it explores the two things that the english are obsessed with which is that we have this law we have this state we mm. have parliament we are the mother of parliaments we we haven't got a written constitution because we kind of but at the same time also the fact that, that this country was the great big revolution in the 17th century which is the beginning of sort of parliamentary democracy and then the other great revolution which is the industrial revolution and he, his thesis is up, up to around about the time of the Second World War. Mm. There was a kind of a consistency uh, about the way the English thought about themselves. Our deepest sense of identity to do with the idea, this is from the book, to do with the idea of coming from a particular place and being a particular kind of person with roots and aptitudes and characteristics for so long driven deep into the ground of our being are decaying now from within. And it is only a matter of time before they become unserviceable. So it just, for me, was an what's attempt it, to take that? stock of all this say, stuff yeah. at a moment where I sort of feel all those notions of Englishness and Britishness and our connection with ideas that are bigger are so in play. And it was... I could go on for hours. There's so many brilliant bits, but I picked one out for you, Andy, which I love in the... He makes a fantastic comparison about punk. He, he's a huge cult, cult, uh-huh. cultural range. He's a massively inter- uh-huh. interested. Punk rock, he said, had many origins. In fact, not all of them off the street. But at the centre, which it denied it had, it is instructive to compare, you'll love this, Sir Hubert Parry's inaugural address to the English Folk Song Society, <laughs> delivered in 1899, with the Sex Pistols lunged to notoriety in the 1970s. At the heart of each was a call for complete unity of expression with emotion. Performance was all and had to be immediate, direct, untutored, not literary, not derivative, not mimicking, not clever, not American, not phony, but fused with the audience. When the fusion was right, there was hardly an audience at all. What punk could do, they could do. A, E, G. This is a chord. Now form a band. Mm, mm, so it's mm. brilliant. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So it's full of these kind of focus pulls and he you, jumps backwards and forwards in time. It's a thematic history, but... The thing I wanted to ask you about this book is post-Brexit. I've had several people say to me, don't the kinks, don't, doesn't Village Green Preservation Society post-Brexit feel a bit, you know, yeah. a bit Brexity? It, which, of course, it, which of course it might but do, but it doesn't right, as well, conservative it, it, in a, in a it's small it's scene. It's isn't, it, isn't it a fact that it's all the wrong people are using that imagery? Yes. I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's not really people like you and me who are using that imagery at the moment. It's, it's other people. It's the Farages it's very, of this world. Yeah. How does it read but now? It, it reads remarkably freshly, except that what's happened since is the division that we, we talk about. The people who think about the past and who feel connected to any kind of complex past feel that that alienation, that sort of idea... He's, there's a, another, just a really quick paragraph, because we've got to get on to Modiano, but... Uh, it's, it is necessary that the English continue to remember their history. Peoples remember, therefore they are. But what sort of remembering can it be? In some ways, remembering past agendas will contradict future ones. This is uh, ironic now. Being part of the European Union, being part of a globalised world, being adaptable and mobile and multilingual and multicultural and open and rational and secular and forward-looking and decented and amnesiac does not square with the nation as it is. It is not possible to imagine a nation as old as this one suddenly forgetting its history simply because it has been asked to do so. <sighs> and it turns out that Mr. Coles was one of the more articulate, very pro-Brexit. And you wouldn't get that because the book is very, very balanced. He, he's not a, a little Englander, but I think he, what he's writing about is a, is a fascinating, which is 
I think is the battle that is, is in everybody at the moment, is you want to feel that you're rooted and that you come from a culture and you come from things that mean something. But at the same time, you like the idea of being part of an idea which is Europe. And is he saying, John, that, that um, Engl England or Britain is, is different to the rest of Europe in that sense? You know, the sense of its own past is deeper somehow or, or more nostalgic? I, just think, or I think he's, that he's too subtle a historian to make. I think what he says is that the memories and the stories that you tell, the, the cultural identity that you create, you can't just wish that away. I mean, he comes from a pretty deep left-wing perspective. Right. You know, his criticisms, he's brilliant on Corbyn. He said, you know, Corbyn's got to get beyond telling apple growers about the virtue of apples, which I thought was quite, quite funny. So this book is called what? Identity it's called of Identity England. of England, which is interesting mm. in itself, because I like the fact there's no definite article. And it, mm. everybody you would expect from... Melvin Bragg to Simon Heffer to, mm -hmm. to, to Linda Colley, you know, said it was, it's the, it's the best attempt. At, uh, I'm amazed. I mean, I could, once I started reading, I couldn't stop. I mean, it's just there's so much massive Stor Stories we tell ourselves about our national past. Yeah. That's, um, that's handy as we go over to Patrick Modiano. <laughs> oh, we've got a bit of a d departure this year. We've been talking, Unbound, as you know, sponsored the podcast. We've been talking about how can we insert a bit of light marketing into the mix without it being embarrassing. <laughs> I probably failed to do that. By this <laughs> introduction. He's the wires on the outside. It's like a Richard <laughs> yeah, Rogers. It's like a Richard <laughs> Renzo Piano of podcastery. Here, here I come. Anyway, you're, going to, you're about to hear a brief minute on a book that is dear to my heart. One of the best novels I think we've done at Unbound. Just published, and I'm talking to you now in, uh, what is it, April 2017. Um, I hope the war went well. I <laughs> <laughs> hope it's okay in the, sh in the shelter. But anyway, uh, Martine McDonagh's Narcissism for Beginners. Hello, my name is Martine McDonagh and I'm the author of Narcissism for Beginners. Meet Sonny Anderson, budding author, ex-meth head, neurotic and Shaun of the Dead obsessive, about to tip headlong into adulthood. Sonny doesn't remember his mother because his father, Guru Bim, kidnapped him at the age of five and took him from his home in Scotland to a commune in Brazil. Since the age of 11 he has lived in Redondo Beach, California with his guardian Thomas who on his 21st birthday throws his world wildly off course. Armed with five mysterious letters and a list of names and addresses of people to visit, Sonny musters up the courage to leave his troubled past behind and return to the UK to finally learn the truth about his childhood. But is it a truth he really wants? Narcissism for Beginners is about a journey that Sonny Anderson makes from Redondo Beach in California to the UK, looking for the mother he hasn't seen since he was five years old. Turning 21, not much about me changed, physically speaking. I didn't grow any taller, I didn't grow any fatter. Pinch me and you'll find no additional flesh on these bones. Even if we were the sole survivors of a plane wreck, you wouldn't eat me for dinner. But nothing stayed the same either. My name grew longer, officially at least, and my bank balance got bigger, much bigger. I have a bona fide Brit passport now, and I'm not so sure where home is anymore. Who am I? Good question. I started out as Sonny Anderson. Now my official name is Sonny Anderson Agilast Bim. But I still go by Sonny Anderson. Your son... 21-year-old recovering addict and multimillionaire, pleased to not meet you. If I were to persuade somebody to buy my book, I would refer them to Catcher in the Rye and ask them if they'd liked that. Because a number of readers have told me that 
Sonny's voice in Narcissism for Beginners reminds them a little of Holden Caulfield. Narcissism for Beginners by Martine McDonough is published by Unbound and available at all good to very good bookshops or direct via the Unbound website. The book chat will continue on the other side of this message. Thank you, everybody. I um, hope that didn't intrude too deeply into, you, into your listening pleasure. But now back to the main subject of today's podcast, the extraordinary work of Patrick Modiano and his 1990 novel, Honeymoon. So, Rupert, when did you uh, first encounter either Honeymoon or Modiano? This has been a, a lifelong passion, actually, because... Really strangely, in Eastbourne Public Library, there was a shelf of translated French fiction in the early 70s, this was. I think I was about 15 when I first pulled Villa Triste out of the shelf. Um, That's Modiano's... I I can't remember where it fits in his... It's an early one. It's mid-70s, isn't it? Mid-70s. Is it mid-70s? His his first book was 68, wasn't it? Yeah. In case, maybe it was another one. I can't actually remember which one it was, but there were two or three of them there. And along with, I mean, along with Modiano at that time, there there were also people like François Mauriac and André Gide and Henri de Montalon, you know, these kind of, a lot of these French writers who most people don't read anymore, Mm -hmm. hardly think about. Well, Gide is an exception. In fact, I'd like to sort of make an appeal on this podcast I've often wondered who the librarian was who was responsible <laughs> for choosing that fiction because it was extraordinary at the time. The more I think about it, the more strange it, it becomes. It's so slender, isn't it, that, yeah. that, that thing? It's, it's like the, the one teacher or yeah. the one bookseller. I don't actually you... have a teacher like that yeah. that everyone's supposed to have. I think I have this librarian <laughs> because whoever this was, he or she changed my reading and, and inspired me for my entire life, in a way. Wow. Because I've, I've gone on reading him, you know, for, what, 40 years, on and off, and he's always been there. The one would have to say this also is the, would be the basis for a Modiano-esque quest as you went through the, <laughs> the records of the Eastbourne library system to try, try and identify... Yes, but I'd have to, no, I'd uh, have to fail... <laughs> I, I should, you'd have to fail, and you'd have to at some point forget the Eastbourne sunshine and the people in Zimmer yeah. frames around you and be possessed by a deep sense of emptiness. Yeah, it would have, the to, emptiness take me, would have to open. It would have to take me eight years. Yeah. That's right, and then yeah. recall yeah. At, at various unlikely points. And I would walk yeah. the streets of Eastbourne, and there'd be, <laughs> there'd be this palimpsest of my own yeah. childhood, you know, that yeah. I'd be walking through at the same time. There's a book in that. We should also say, it seems very odd that one has to say this, but we do these days, that we're reduced to having to make a case for public libraries, but there's one right there. You know, the fact that somebody was given a shelf and a small budget to put a few books out and, as you suggest, massively expand the horizons of someone who happens to take one of those books off the shelf. I mean, when when Modiano got the Nobel Prize, which was something I was slightly disappointed by, because he was still my secret... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I felt, even after 35 years. When he got that prize, I, I was about the only person that anyone knew in the country who liked Modiano. And so I remember the end of several papers called me up immediately and said, you know, could you respond to this? And I'm not a journalist. I don't really work as a journalist. But I happened to be at home, so I, um, I answered the phone. And they, I said, OK, I can probably do that. When, when do you want it? Thinking, you know, it would be tomorrow or the next day. They said, in an hour and a half. Oh. <laughs> oh. But I did it, and, and, I, and I told the story of the, the library story, you know, and I sort of did make an appeal 
at the end of this little piece, you know, to say, you know, this, this kind of thing just wouldn't happen in libraries anymore, would it? You can't imagine that. No, Can you imagine I don't that? think so. The thing about Modiano winning it's the hard Nobel... It's in bookshops. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. it was, the state of translated fiction gets we, worse rather well, than better. We should also say that Modiano, Patrick Modiano, won the Nobel Prize in 2014, at which stage there were only about eight, nine of his 40 or so books available mm. to read in English. Uh, most of them had not been translated and, and it, were we doing this several years it's, in the last couple of years many more of them have been and, translated and, and there's something strange about that because, because he, he was a phenomenon in France mm. a literary yeah. phenomenon from very early on I think, I think first, did, first, he won the well, Prix Goncourt which is their booker isn't it yeah. yes, he won that right. very early he won that in 78 and his, and even his, yeah. first, even his yeah. first book won sort of best first yeah. novel award yeah. so, uh, so, so for English speaking audiences and readers. Uh, we just got a clip now. This is a clip from Euronews reporting on Modiano's victory and there's a superb bit of simultaneous translation going on in this which I, I would ask you to listen out for. Patrick Modiano meets the media after being awarded the 2014 Nobel Prize for Literature. The usually retiring writer said the accolade came as a complete surprise and he was interested to discover why he was chosen. I'm a prisoner when I write. You cannot be your own reader and you have this confused picture of the books you write. So I'm really looking forward to finding out how I won this honour. Much of his writing focuses on the elusive themes of memory, loss and identity. His novels look back to France, particularly Paris, during the German occupation. The writer has been cherished in France for years, with only a handful of his novels translated into English. That looks set to change. <laughs> and that was very prescient of, uh, of that young gentleman, because he did, because there's been, there's been, you know, I, I, I would say there's been about... 12, maybe 15 of his books have pre-appeared in the last couple of years in English. Yeah. So that's, suddenly... actually, that's actually a pretty fluent interview, though, for Modiano, apparently, because he... I was on this island... I was on this island off Brittany last summer um, called Belle-Ile, and I, I met this woman called Geneviève Guichnet. Um, she's a TV journalist in Paris, and she did cultural programmes, and I was thinking about Modiano for some reason. I said, did you ever interview him? And she said, yes, it was an absolute nightmare because it was just, he would start a sentence five times and there were all these ellipses. You know how his novels are full of a, a dot, dot, dots? Mm -hmm. uh, he, he speaks in exactly the same way as he writes. So I said, do you know him a bit? And she said, um, my dog knows his dog. <laughs> And I went, right. And uh, she said, well, it's just that I live in the same, uh, late, much later on, she lived in the same area as he did. Mm. And, and their dogs became friends. And, and apparently he had this large black poodle that had a bandage, a pink bandage around its leg. And I just thought, <laughs> that doesn't sound like Modiano at all. That's some, except, <laughs> except that I remembered, I remembered that, that um, there, are, there are various dog themes, aren't there, with Modiano? Like mm -hmm. the... The way in which, in Pedigree, the novel which, you know, is... It, sorry, it's not a novel, it's, it's not about... It's a, yeah. sort of, it's a memoir. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so slight that it takes about 20 minutes to read. I yeah. mean, it, it's very, very quick, but it's incredibly powerful. And he's talking about his mother, and he says, she was a pretty woman with an arid heart. 
And he goes on to describe his example of her arid heart is, to, is not to do with him, it's to do with the dog. I think yeah. it's a chihuahua or chow chow. Yeah. Is she it chow chow chihuahua? She was a pretty girl with an arid heart. Yeah. Her fiancé had given her a chow chow, but she didn't take care of it and left it with various people, as she would later do with me. The chow chow killed itself by leaping from a window. That's it, that's <laughs> the it. dog appears in two or three photographs, and I have to admit that he touches me deeply and that I feel a great kinship with him. Isn't that an, that's an amazing illustration of your relationship with a parent. I mean, also, also the fact that he calls that book Pedigree as if he's an animal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, he has no pedigree because his parents are kind of. He, said, he, he says later on him. here, actually, uh, it, it's interesting, you, you've identified a bit that I. I really leapt out at me mm. as well. He says here, nothing softened the coldness and hostility she had always shown me. I was never able to confide in her or ask her for help of any kind. Sometimes, like a mutt with no pedigree that has too mm. often been left on its own, I feel the childish urge to set down in black and white just what she put me through with her insensitivity and heartlessness. I keep it to myself and I forgive her. It's all so distant now. I remember copying out these words by Léon Blois at school. Man has places in his heart which do not yet exist, and into them enters suffering in order that they may have existence. But in this case, it was suffering for nothing, the kind from which you can't even fashion a poem. Now, I've got mm. a tenuous link there. Which novel, famous 20th century British wartime novel, begins with its epigraph is that quote from Léon Blois. I just don't Pass. Go on. Man <laughs> has places in hearts that do not yet exist into which enter suffering that they may have existence. Sounds like a Graham Greene novel. It is Graham Greene. It's the end of the affair by Graham Greene. Uh, that's, the, that's the epigraph of that book. But yes, yeah, absolutely. The extraordinary thing about Modiano is that you, you might think, well, if that's his mother... <laughs> then surely the father must have... The father's even worse. Your father's worse. That terrible story yeah. about his yeah. father. When he, his father just farmed him out to boarding schools. His brother Rudy dies... Age nine, Age I think. nine. Yeah. And when Modiano's 11. And his dad just says to him, as they're driving home, your brother's dead. Yeah. And Modiano always says that, that the, he never, he the, never, the only person he loved from his family yeah, was his brother. brother's brother. So yeah. that he was completely abandoned mm. with these sort of two monstrous parents. We should talk about this book because yeah. it is, I as you say, it is mysterious. Uh, Rupert, could you, could you read us a little bit from the book? So we're talking about the style in which Modiano writes. It would be good, I think, to, to let people uh, hear a little bit of that. I should probably set it up a little bit. Um, I mean, the main character, Jean, the book opens with, with, um, with Jean having flown into Milan on a stiflingly hot August day, middle of August. So Milan is kind of deserted because the Ferragosto, you know, everyone leaves. And so the city is deserted and, and sort of sunstruck and he takes refuge in the cool, dark bar of this hotel near the railway station. And uh, he's just sitting there, sitting there drinking grenadine, as people do in Modiano novels. And... Uh, when he learns that um, two days earlier uh, a young, a beautiful young woman committed suicide in that hotel, and it kind of transpires that that he he had come across this woman when he was in his very early late teens, early twenties. So the book is, in a sense, there's two main strands to it. Um, Jean basically disappears from his life. He pretends to be flying to South America instead of which he 
flies to Milan and returns secretly to the, to the, sub, the northern suburbs of, of Paris, the 18th arrondissement, I think. Um, and he begins to investigate uh, this woman who committed suicide, who he'd met. So, so part of what he's doing is recounting um, his meeting with this woman and her, her husband slash boyfriend in the early 60s. So the bit I'm going to read is just, he's in the south of France in the early 60s, he, he's hitching and he gets picked up by this couple and they, they kind of take him back to the bungalow where they're staying. And there's kind of something, I mean, they're not very forthcoming, they're quite mysterious, they don't really, they don't make any sense to him. But he feels strangely at ease in their company. Yeah. Well, he, he feels as if he's one of them, actually. Yeah. Above us, behind the pines, the villa and its swimming pool were lit up, and I could see silhouettes gliding over the blue mosaic. They have parties every night, Rigo said. They stop us sleeping. That's why we're looking for another house. He suddenly looked worn out. At the beginning, they were always inviting us to their parties, Ingrid said. So we used to turn out all the lights in the bungalow and pretend we weren't there. We'd sit in the dark, Rigo said. One evening they came down to fetch us. We took refuge under the pines, over there. Why were they adopting this confidential or even confessional tone with me, as if they were trying to justify themselves? Do you know them, I asked. Yes, yes, a little, he said. But we don't want to see them. We've become savages, she said. Voices were approaching. A little group, about 50 metres away, was coming along the pine-bordered path. Do you mind if we put the light out? he asked me. He went into the bungalow and the light went out, leaving us, her and me, in the semi-darkness. She put her hand on my wrist. Now, she said, we must talk very quietly. And she smiled at me. Behind us, he shut the sliding glass door slowly so as not to make a noise and came and sat down on the deck chair again. The others were very close now, just by the path leading to the bungalow. I heard one of them keep repeating in a husky voice, but I swear I did, I swear I did. If they come right up to us, we'll just have to pretend to be asleep, he said. I thought of the curious sight we should present to them, asleep on our deck chairs in the dark. And if they tap us on the shoulder to wake us up, I asked. Well, in that case, we'll pretend to be dead, she said. Key passage in the novel. It's just brilliant. It comes back again and again. It's the best. It's so odd, isn't it, that he it, uh, reading it and it, having I read it first time along. Again, it's one of those books when you come back to it. It was. I just. It was. I found it very emotional. I found it very powerful being back in that strange, dreamy world, which is also. It, it, it has a sort of horrible allegorical quality mm. because there's nothing. There are no Gestapo. There are no. There are no arrests. There are no deportations in this book. No, there are only suggestions. But it's all about dark and light. It's mm. all about summer and winter. He's amazing, Modiano. It's the, all the books are about the passage from summer to winter and seasons. He seems to me interesting to be a novelist again. Who I I, I don't think. I think this book is so interesting about getting to that point in your life where you want to disappear. I think it's quite dis difficult for young people to imagine that. I mean, I don't know whether it's just me or I'm coming back to it and finding much more in it this time than I did the first time, where I, I guess I probably thought it was 
kind of good but slight. Well, there's something I wanted to say about that because the slightness is so interesting because, you know, his, his style is really, really spare and elliptical and the words feel... I don't know, they feel as if they're hardly attached to the page. You know, there's an awful lot of white space on, the, on, the, on, the, on a page of Modiano's novels. And, and yet, as you say, paradoxically, there's a huge amount of emotion in there somehow. Mm. And I think what you do when you read them is there's a huge amount of filling out you do yourself. He's kind of the opposite of Gabriel Garcia Marquez or, yeah. so, or, or William Faulkner, where there's, there's a massive intensity of detail and, you know, he, he kind of does the opposite. And... The weird thing when I read this book again, you know, just after Christmas, knowing I was going to do this, was that it didn't read as I remembered it. And I realized what I'd done was I'd sort of filled it all in myself and made my that's own version. So this time, because I'm so a different person, yeah. I was also, doing a different thing. Which, of course, is what he's writing about often in the books, is what we choose to remember and what we choose to forget, mm. or things that we cannot get back that we would like to remember. I think it's remember. more that. I think, you know, people... I think the Nobel people sort of talked about him being a, a, te a technician of memory or something, mm. you know, but actually it's much more about what is forgotten mm. and what cannot be recovered mm. and, and the sort of quest for that. You know, this is why he is using genres like um, spy fiction and detective fiction and film noir, you know, all these, all these yeah. genres are, caught, are sort of in there. I don't think he's particularly aware of that and I don't think it's a conscious choice. We were talking but, about Orson Welles earlier and I was really reminded the first time I read honeymoon um, of a story about um, the screening that Wells held for his film The Lady from Shanghai starring his then wife or soon to be ex-wife Rita Hayworth yeah. The Lady from Shanghai is full of brilliant visual technical stuff with a plot that is extremely difficult to follow and at the end of the screening the lights came up and Harry Cohen the, the head of Columbia turned to the room and said, I will give $1,000 to anyone who can tell me the plot of the film we've just watched. And I have to say, and this is a positive thing I say about Honeymoon, mm. the first time I read it, I got to the end of it, I yeah. thought, I, what, ha uh, what, what happened? But you know what, what I just, what I just the... proved that point by, by my useless introduction you know, to the reading, because I, it's, it's incredibly hard to mm. set this book up. You know, if you, uh, uh, it, I've realised there are sort of basically three strands to it. You know, there's, there's what Jean does in the present day, disappearing from his own marriage. Yeah. Yeah. And discovering that his wife is not actually having an affair with the person he thought she was. Yeah. He's having an she's having an affair with someone else. But, um, but then, you know, then you've got the meeting with Ingrid and the, Ingrid and Rigaud and that time. Then you've got his imaginary recreation of that time that's, 20 years earlier, that's during so, the occupation. That's what's so fascinating. When I reread the book, I went through and made a note of the different the shifts in mm. time yeah. in a 120-page book. And, there, and, are, and, there are nine of them. Yeah, and he goes and, from first person to, yeah, to, first, to third. And, I mean, it's, it's, and also with no explicit way, there's a fascinating thing he does. I think the thing you're talking about, Rupert, where the narrator refers to his notes. He says, these are yeah. notes yeah. that I kept 10 years ago, which I'm looking at now in the present. But he then presents those notes as clearly mm. fictionalised accounts of Ingrid and Rigo's activities. It's as real activities. as anything he's doing. It's, it's, yes, if anything, more so. Yeah. More, yeah. more realised yeah. and yeah, yeah, motivated yeah. and understood yeah. because he can't, because he hasn't experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, there's this wonderful thing in one of his books where, where Modiano says of a character, he says that he had a memory that preceded his birth. Yeah. And, and oh, Modiano yeah. is a bit like that. You know, he, yeah. he, he's, he's a writer who was born in 1945 and yet the occupation, everything he writes really is kind of rooted 
in the occupation of Paris. And that's before he was born. And it's somehow more real to him than anything that happened subsequently. Uh, Re-reading again, you just realise that it's sort of something that French literature does that almost nothing else does. That thing of standing and looking at a building and feeling that sort of Sartrean, your sudden you know, emptiness mm. you know, enters the soul and you're kind of trying to... You're imagining all the lives that took place. That mm. strange passage in, in The Honeymoon, that passage where he's, he, get, he finds Rigo's flat yeah. and takes it. And moves in. And moves in. Mm. And there's sort of objects that... And there's the skis the leaning skis, against the wall that he's imagined earlier yeah. on Rigo using. But that thing with yeah. the buildings, that's very present in um, Dora Bruder, which is... Uh, translated as the search warrant here. Which the idea of looking at the buildings yeah. and thinking to oneself, it was in this geographical location that these things happened, yeah. but everyone wants to forget, and it couldn't be recreated and it couldn't be brought back. And yes, it happened. Then there's, there's a resonance of it in the room and there's a resonance yeah, of it in the... Yeah, absolutely. This morning I, I, I googled a couple of the locations. I mean, one that he uses in Honeymoon and the other that he uses in Dora Bruder and the search warrant. And... You know, one is is, the, is Port de Clignancourt, which is mm. north Paris, beyond the Gare du Nord, and the other one is sort of southeast Paris, near um, Port Doré. And the weird thing about both of them is that the périphérique, it's cut through both right, those areas. Right, okay. And so it, those areas have kind of been destroyed. Mm. It's such a... I mean, uh, there's a lo- lovely bit here where he t- he, he's... The, Ingrid, the woman who commits suicide, who, he, who picks him up, he's writing in a fairly ineffectual way, her biography. I felt a vague twinge of remorse. Has a biographer the right to suppress certain details under the pretext that he considers them superfluous? Or do they all have their importance? He must present them one after another, impartially, so that not a single one is left out, as in the inventory of a distraint. Unless the line of a life, once it has reached its term, purges itself of all its useless and decorative elements, in which case all that remains is the essential, the blanks, the silences and the pauses. I finally fell asleep, turning all these serious questions over in my mind. Mm, mm. <laughs> it's just... But we were, t- we were talking, when we, I'm, we were talking about how hard it is to sum up the narrative of the book yeah. and it, it, I, I, here's, here's how not to do it, <laughs> it, 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 it even the person who wrote the blurb on this otherwise especially uh, the person who well wrote the blurb. clearly struggled about it. i'm going to i'm going to read it read it out uh, as best i can jean is seen off from paris by his wife and friends on a flight to brazil to make a documentary but he never gets to rio He goes to ground in Paris instead as he pursues an obsessive quest to piece together the life of a woman he had met only briefly on the Côte d'Azur many years before. Ingrid's story, which ended when she took her life one sultry August day in a Milan hotel, effectively began when, as a 16-year-old student dancer in Paris during the occupation, she chose one snowy winter's evening to stay out after the curfew instead of returning to her father and disappear. (laughs) She was offered refuge by a young man who became her lover. In Honeymoon, Modiano skillfully cross-cuts between these two stories of disappearance, that of the middle-aged Jean, caught between his unsettled family life and his new clandestinity and that of Ingrid, now dead, and yet still so palpably present, who had offered Jean a brief refuge in a Riviera beach house years ago when he was a lone youngster. Sharply evoking people, places and atmosphere, 
the author has written an absolutely haunting tale. <laughs> I, mean, it's I love absolutely haunting. An absolutely haunting tale. <laughs> you know, the thing is, it's very... Actually, <laughs> one of the things about Modiano is uh, he, he is... In fact, he probably won the Nobel Prize because he he repeats himself. Yeah, mm. that he himself said, it's, the, it's yeah. the same mm. book. Well, yeah. he's like he's like Faulkner or Alice Munro yeah. in that sense. Yeah. You know, he has his territory and he return he returns obsessively. He says um, there's an interview here that he gave to the New York Times. There are often refrains, things that come back, but they're not really the same. It's like a photographer who tries to capture someone from different angles and it's not quite coming out right. He takes a shot from one angle and then he hesitates mm. and he takes another from a different angle. And I read elsewhere in an interview where he was saying every time he writes a book, he thinks this is the He's one where I get it. it. Yeah. And, and at the end he thinks, no, it got away from yeah. me again, but maybe next time I'll... He was hugely influenced apparently by this... Uh, have you read this? He, he was... Um hugely influenced by this book by um, a kind of Nazi hunter type called Serge Klaasfeld, mm. who wrote something called The Memorial of the Deportation of Jews in France. And apparently that book is literally just 80,000 names and addresses of Jews who disappeared. And Guadiano, yeah. I think, read this in 78 or something. And, it, and after that, he said he, he doubted literature because he thought, because yeah. actually that, yeah. that is sort of doing what what he's doing. I think that's what's so extraordinary about him because if you go to the search warrant, which is a is mm. technically a novel, I suppose, yeah. but not really more in the way that it reminded me most of Zabalt. That it's the most Zabalt like yes, of I agree. the kind of the journey, the obsessive attention to detail, the telling of real life stories by I think he's approaching from a non fiction Angle, but then it edges into but fiction. You can't, just... What you realise from the, the, the search warrant, which it, the, the reason he wrote Honeymoon was the discovery of this short advert um, yeah. uh, about a Jewish girl in mm. 1942 called Dora Bruder, who, whose father had put in a, an advert saying she had disappeared with a very precise description. Yeah. And he became so haunted by this detail. Uh, that he wrote the novel Honeymoon to some degree to exercise or yep. explain mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. happened. So the Dora Bruder becomes the, the, the Ingrid in the book. But then he goes back some years later uh, to write the search warrant. It's almost like he can't... Using her actual name. Using her actual yeah. name so and doing actual yeah. research. Yeah. And that whole thing about the, the biography, do you put... Do you put yes. all the details what? in, or do yeah. you... Well, somebody said about him that the, the comparison to Proust is made quite a lot, but saying, you know, in a sense, these aren't separate books, they're chapters in one book, a book that starts with his first novel, Place des Toiles, mm. and yeah. ends with Dora Bruder. That Dora Bruder mm. is like the, the fiction is falling away by that point, as he tries to deal with what, what you were talking you? about, Rupert, which is yeah. trying to say, well, what, what is the difference between what I am doing mm. and, on the other hand, just mm. providing a list of 80,000 names? Yeah. What, is the, what, can I, what space can well, I occupy? That that's, where, that that's where he becomes, you know, the thing is, it's not, as I say, explicitly political, um, but that's where he becomes such an important, you know, the novelist of, of collective memory. His, his father although obviously a ratbag was from a Sephardic Jewish background. He didn't know that, though, did he, Modiano, until he was he about 18 or 19? And he, then he, he became, never knew. And then he became obsessed yeah. with how did his... When 76,000 people were rounded up and deported in, in, in Paris, yeah. how did his father... So it's that 
complicated relationship. He kind of resents deeply both his parents, but can't get them. I mean, it, it's it's like a massive long. His well, fiction his is a long was, therapy session. His father was so complicated because his father was a kind of Jewish black, collaborator. I mean, a collaborator, black um, marketeer, yeah. and, and his mother was an actress. Yeah. I have got a special treat for you both. When I was researching this morning, I discovered two wonderful facts about Modiano, which I don't think are widely known. The first is that he co-authored a book with Catherine Deneuve. That I don't know, but I better know the second one. Okay, so he co-authored a book with Catherine Deneuve about her sister, Françoise Dorléac, the actress... She was in Polanski's movie. Yeah, she's also in Les Demoiselles, Jacques Demi's Les Demoiselles de Rochefort with Catherine Deneuve, and then she was killed in a a car crash in the 1960s. So who do, you, who do you call upon to help you <laughs> write a <laughs> book about but? memory <laughs> about your missing sibling Brilliant. 30 years yeah. later? Apache Modiano. The second... Songs? So... <laughs> yes, good Modiano I know about the songs. It's wrote good, songs yeah. for Francoise Hardy. Yeah, all right. Now, My father's favourite singer. <laughs> we, uh, we have a clip now <laughs> yeah. from a song entitled Je Fais Puzzle. I do jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just listen. This is a this is a, a, a little sliver of Modiano's work, which is not much. Oh, looks fun. So let's just let's just hear a bit of that now. Right, so I thought I was listening to that, and I was John, you were sceptical when Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> I, yeah. I think, you know, anyway, I listened to that this morning, and I thought, you know what, I, listening to the lyrics, they, see, they do seem very Modiano-esque, <laughs> so, I, so I have translated them. Oh, brilliant. And I am, this is a, a piece of Modiano's, we were talking about the English translations of his work. Original. This is the first time. Ladies and gentlemen, translated on air. <laughs> this has never been An translated explicit. into English before. <laughs> But listen to it, because the words are so... If I asked you which novelist wrote these words, you might guess Modiano, right? (laughs) He had December eyes and a July smile. He spoke tender words in winter as in summer. Every evening, every evening I do jigsaw puzzles. Every evening, every evening, I feel truly alone. He had London ways of promising me Corfu. But in sun or shadow, I followed him anywhere. Every evening, every evening, I do jigsaw puzzles. Every evening, every evening, I feel truly alone. When I had black thoughts, he painted them all in blue, this slightly uncanny blue that I found in his eyes. Every evening, every evening, I do jigsaw puzzles. Every evening, every evening, I feel truly alone. He sailed away without telling me where he was going. In a few light years, he told me he would return. Every evening I do jigsaw puzzles. Every evening I feel truly alone. <laughs> isn't oh, that, in, isn't no, that amazing? That's genius. so like only a Modiano. Fra- only, only the French sh- tradition of chanson. Could, could you, 
Are you it's sure beautiful. that's not on the Petula Clark beach? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, no. But, uh, that's sure. that season thing, but also all the light, the imagery yes. of light in the book. You know, the, the patches of light in Milan, but then the dark patch. that the, Do you he, remember the he man? Ta- the he talk, he yeah. talks, him, talks about him as... And I, you have the this idea patch. of something that's darker than the darkness around mm. it, which mm. is, you know, if you were going to come up with a good metaphor for, 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 for what was happening... So, so um, Rupert, if, if also, we... Also, can I just yes, last... Oh, m- yeah. last he, Raymond Cano tutored him in geometry. Yes, yeah. Which I think <laughs> is just... Well, is. Cano took him under his wing, didn't yeah. he? And there's a, there's a famous... He's, he tells a story about his wedding in 1970 where, where, uh, where the two um, stewards at the wedding were Cano and Andre Malraux oh, who had an yeah. argument yeah. about something yeah. <laughs> in the course it's of the just, wedding. I love the thing, teaching him... Teaching him also, that Modiano, you have to say that early pictures of Modiano moodily in his kind of leather trench coat. Uh, I mean, he was... Oh, with the almost shoulder-length black yeah, hair. Yeah, and I mean, he was pretty... Yeah. So he was pretty much your, your ideal early 60s. Only the cigarette missing. Yeah. So before we wind up, Rupert, is Honeymoon a good starting point for Modiano, or do you think you have to read several... I think it's a great starting point. I mean, you know, most of, as we've suggested, I think, most of what he does is in there. I mean, I I happen to really love the the early ones, Night Rounds, Ring Mm. Road. Mm. Um, I'm not so happy with some of the recent translations, that's all. In fact, I always had the idea that I would be... This is a brilliant translation. Yeah, the Honeymoon, I think, is why I return to it all the time, because it's it's just, it's excellent. So you hardly put the foot wrong. Barbara Barbara, Barbara 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 Wright. Wright, yeah. But yeah, some Villa Triste I've just been reading again. Um, yes, and Dora Bruder is kind of yeah. I think you have to read because it's probably the most, in a sense, it's the, it's the most, handbook. It's the purest, yeah. Well, it's the purest I, expression. I, yeah. I read Dora Bruder when I was in Paris, in fact, before Christmas, and I found it very, very affecting. I must mm. say, I found it very, very moving. It's the book that's most devoid of of, of his atmospherics, of his traditional. Mm you know, the, the traditional things that he does. A lot of that's missing in that book, and, and I think it's even more powerful for that. Actually. Yes, I agree. This is from Dora, Dora Bruder. It sort of has the, captures the whole spirit of that book, and the, the, that it's a more explicit book in some ways. Mm. A father tries to find his daughter, notifies her disappearance at a police station, and a missing notice is inserted in an evening newspaper. But the father himself is wanted. The parents lose all trace of their daughter, and on 19th of March... One of them disappears in their turn, as if the winter that year was cutting people off from one another, muddying and wiping out their tracks to the point where their existence is in doubt. And there is no redress. The very people whose job it is to search for you are themselves compiling dossiers. The better ensure that, once found, you will disappear again, this time for good. Mm. Oh, that's perfect. Well... John, well, that seems. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is obviously uh, a point at which to stop. Huge thanks to Rupert for an um, amazing tour of the world of Modiano. Mm. Obviously to Matt Hall, our producer, and thanks again to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on all the usual places at Backlisted Pod on Twitter, Facebook.com forward slash Backlisted Pod, and on the page on the Unbound site at unbound.co.uk or .com forward slash backlisted if you listen uh, to us on itunes it would be great if you could leave a review on our page but thank you for listening we'll be back with another show in a fortnight until then goodbye every evening every evening i feel truly alone
You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.